So speaking of potentially feeling isolated, nice segue there. Um, we actually spoke to Lily Simonson, who is an artist, and she's actually known for depicting a lot of marine life. Um, and basically her art led to her um, applying for the National Science Foundation's Artist and Writers Program in Antarctica, where she lived for three months. And so we got to talk to her. Um, one thing that one thing that is really interesting, and we kind of start with the interview this way, was that she basically started painting what's called a yeti crab which is this crab that no one even knew existed and she was one of the first people to see it and then like once she started talking she basically wanted to see it and she went to paris to go see it and paint it and then all of these scientists wanted to become friends with her because they're like oh well you should paint what i've discovered and then she just kind of integrated herself into this whole marine life biologist community and that's what got her to antarctica so she she's found a really cool niche for herself and you guys did some real talk yeah yeah you'll hear it she um she talked about what it's like to to date in antarctica while being in an open date relationship humans. yeah yeah no not not penguins as good as they look in a tuxedo har har um, so that was elegant. Thank you. Okay, so let's get started. Yeah, let's listen. What happened was um, so the first Yeti crab species was discovered in 2006, or that's when the discovery was announced. Since then, they've discovered a few other species. And um, I think in 2010, I heard about another species getting discovered. And this one was discovered by Andrew Thurber, who at the time was a grad student at Scripps, which is in San Diego. And I live in LA. I contacted Andrew Thurber um, about coming to his lab and looking at his specimens of the Yeti crab. So I did that and I started working with him and his advisor. And Andrew at a certain point said, you know, I know you're interested in the Yeti crab, but my main focus is these polychaete worms, which are furry worms, um, in Antarctica. So he also, because he had been working there for a few years, he knew about this program that the National Science Foundation has, where uh, the NSF sends almost all just researchers and and research support to these three different bases in Antarctica. But in addition to sending scientists, they have a program where they send a couple, one or two artists or writers every year. So I decided I wanted to apply for that program and I wanted to dive there. Um, but I had never scuba dove before. So obviously to dive under six feet of sea ice through a hole, you need a lot of experience. So it was a years long process. I think, you know, I first learned about it in 2010 or 2011 and I started learning to scuba dive and getting a lot of, you know, practice experience in under the water. And then eventually I did apply for the artist and writer program. What was your actual proposal? What was your actual vision? My proposal was to connect um, the biology 
of the sea life to um, the way it, it was sort of the idea was to think about water in Antarctica. And my idea or my vision was to paint that continuum. So I went diving like twice a day, every day for a month when I was living on station. You're somewhere where not many people can say that they've been. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know what the number is, but I think it's just a couple dozen people maybe more, maybe a few dozen that have dove there over the years. So the water there is minus two Celsius. It's about 28 degrees Fahrenheit because salt water freezes at a lower temperature. And there's a big drill that they use to drill a, a hole in the sea ice. That's The hole is maybe four feet wide. And as I mentioned, the sea ice is six feet thick and you wear a dry suit. So it's kind of like an astronaut suit. So no water is meant to get in unless you get a leak, which did happen to me a couple times. Um, And you wear these big dry gloves that look like lobster claws. So you get in, you go through the ice, and it's very disorienting when you first get in because you're just surrounded by white ice. And then you drop below it, And you can see, it feels like you can see forever. Um, Something really special about diving there is because there's so much darkness during the winter, um, nothing grows in the water column. So when we were diving, which was in October and November, that's springtime in Antarctica because it's in the Southern Hemisphere. So there's just the light is just beginning. So you're just coming out of a long season of darkness. And so the water is incredibly clear. You can see like 600 to 1,000 feet. And the best visibility elsewhere in the world is like 100 feet. So it's, it's incredible. Um, and the island that the station is on, Ross Island, is volcanic. And, and the seafloor drops off really steeply. So it's this dramatic... Um, vista where you get to see you know you can look down hundreds of feet and see the seafloor and see what's on it and it uh, it's the the volcanic rock is really dark but then these animals stand out really starkly so it's just covered in nudibranchs which are like a sea slug and uh, sea stars and urchins and anemones and huge sponges Um, There's this phenomenon of giganticism where because there's more oxygen in the water, uh, the animals grow bigger than they would in temperate waters. So we would encounter sponges that were like three times my size. They're octopi, they're huge jellies. um, And it's, yeah, it's really gorgeous. And the ice has these sort of platelet formations, so it looks like feathers, like the underside of the sea ice looks feathery. It's really beautiful, and it glows. I mean, it's very luminous. Wow. So, I mean, were you taking photos? What were you doing? Yeah, I took photos and video, and then I had a studio on the research base, And um, we were diving, I helped with science projects um, because that's part of what I do now. Like I like embedding in the research itself and helping with the field work because I think it enriches uh, the art ultimately and then helps the art serve the science a little better too if I understand 
what it is I'm painting. So I helped uh, researchers collect like dragonfish, um, helped them collect uh, water samples and data about temperature and acidification. Um, and then at the same time, I got to just collect my own specimens of like if I saw an organism that looked interesting, I would take it and put it in my little mesh bag. And then at the end of the dive, we'd go back to the station and I would put it in an aquarium in the lab. And then I could use it as a model when I was painting in my studio. So I used a combination of painting from memory and painting from the video footage and then painting from those uh, critters that I collected. Can you also describe some of the challenges you faced as an artist on Antarctica? It's obviously challenging to do um, in situ or plein air painting when you're scuba diving. And when I dive around here, I actually make drawings on a slate, but I wasn't, so you can you can use a pencil and sort of a roughed up slate and make sketches underwater. Is that like a canvas that you can use underwater? Sort of, it's really just a piece of plastic, but yeah, you can use it underwater. And um, so I make a lot of sketches when I dive here. And I had intended to do that down there, but of course, because we have to use these massive dry gloves, I wasn't able to. So that was one challenge. I couldn't do my underwater drawing thing. Um, and then, uh, so the visibility is really, really special in early spring. Then as the light increases moving into summer, there is plankton that begins to grow. And there's a big plankton bloom that happens in early December. And usually almost overnight, the visibility drops around the second week of December from like, 600 or a thousand feet to like 10 feet almost overnight so the diving season is during this very specific time um, and then after the diving wrapped up i went up to mount erebus which is the southernmost active volcano in the world and i camped at the top of erebus um, and the average temperature is minus 20 celsius it was colder when i was there that's the average summer temperature um, it was colder than that when I was there and my paints like immediately froze. So I wasn't able to make any plein air paintings, but I did make a lot of drawings. Um, but even my drawings, it's so windy and so cold that my drawings were a little like, were pretty shaky. <laughs> I think you also mentioned when we talked that it was so windy there too. Yeah, uh, in the dry valleys, it wasn't so much cold that kept me from painting. I mean, it's a little below freezing, but my paints did okay there. Um, it was more the wind. Uh, the dry valleys are one of the windiest places on the planet, and that's part of why there's no ice on the ground um, or snow. I would mix up a paint color, and I'd have to suddenly protect it because the wind would sort of sweep it off the palette. Um, and we're very conscious of the environmental in impact. So um, allowing paint to stay on the ground or like touch anything, touch any of the rocks is like a big no-no. So I had to be very cautious. So um, it was much more practical to make drawings in the field. 
were scientists showing you, okay, this is what it used to be like, this is what it is now, like, could you, did you notice changes? Um, one of the features that was being studied um, in the dry valleys was this exposed ice cliff in a valley called Garwood Valley, and Joe Levy was observing the way it was changing very, very rapidly, and it's, um, the Arctic is changing really fast. The Antarctic relative to the Arctic is changing rather slowly, but there will be major changes when the planet warms. And this specific area, Garwood Valley, has, um, it's not warming, but there is increased sunlight. And that increased sunlight is creating a lot of melt. So I actually did observe like, you know, um, Garwood two years ago versus the Garwood I saw this season is completely different. It's changed a lot. Um, and that is a harbinger of what the rest of the continent will look like when the temperatures rise throughout. You were with your boyfriend at the time, right? Or no? Yeah. What was that like? How to tell him that that was something that, and your family, that that was something that you wanted to do? Yeah, it definitely wasn't easy on my relationship to be gone that long. Um, but I think that I had applied, it's a very long process. So I applied for the artist and writer program in April of 2013. And then my boyfriend and I got together in September of that year. So when our relationship started, he knew that I had applied for this Antarctica thing and that I was really hoping to go. And then I found out in December of 2013 that I had gotten it, but I didn't go till a year later. So we had a long time to mentally prepare for that trip. What, like, what were some of those conversations like? Well, my boyfriend was really nervous about me diving. He does a lot of backpacking in the mountains and stuff. So he's been near hypothermic before. Um, so he was actually more expressive of his concern. And then in terms of my boyfriend, I think uh, we were long distance throughout our relationship. I lived in LA and he lived in Berkeley. And because of that, we've often like gone in phases of being not exclusive. So that was the phase we were in when I was in Antarctica, which I think made it easier too. So I dated people <laughs> in Antarctica. He dated people in Berkeley. You did? What was that like? Um, it's really funny, like um, especially being on station. Uh, and most people who live there are science support and they have to stay the whole summer which is October to February. So therefore, they're, they are there for a long time. Um, and so there are a lot of, there's a really fun like social scene. They have to make it fun because everybody's stuck there for so long. So there are like three bars. Um, and there's a whole range of people. So it's really fun. Uh, and yeah, dating there is kind of funny because it's like 70% male. Um, so, yeah, and, and because everybody is, like, living in the same place and eating in the same place, like, relationships get really intense really quickly. So how did you meet um, 
you know, like your Antarctica lover, <laughs> lovers. I mean, it's just hard to not meet people. Like I dated some people that were doing research and I met them. I think everybody I met, I met on station. So yeah, I dated a couple people that were doing research. I dated a couple people that were like science support. Um, and I mean, for me, it was just sort of fun because like I was committed to my boyfriend and um, yeah. So it was, it was more more casual, I guess. Yeah. If you're casually hooking up with someone, like, do you have to remove 25 million different layers? Yeah. Um, I only, for definitely hooking up with someone in the field is more difficult, although people do it. I only did it once, and it, it didn't go well. We were both just like, we're so cold. We're so cold. <laughs> so, yeah, that didn't work out. <laughs> We were both just like shivering. Then finally, I was like, I'm going to my own tent. That is so funny. And then, what about the dorm? My roommate um, at McMurdo was dating this guy, and she set me up with his roommate. And I think that they were kind of hoping that they would get more privacy and we could switch off rooms. The only problem was that we were sort of against, contrary to gender stereotypes, my roommate and I, our room was just like super messy. And we didn't do any, even though we were both there most of the season, we didn't do any nesting. It just looked like a prison cell. And their room was like really nice. They had all these decorations. It was like very comfortable. They had a couch. So like we both were always trying to go to the, the guy's room. So it kind of didn't work as well as I think my roommate and her boyfriend hoped to set me up with that guy. Um, and then I also got to, uh, I also dated this guy who was a helicopter pilot. Um, and helicopter pilots, because they have such an intense job, they get their own room. So that was easier. Um, and yeah, sometimes, yeah, so that you just sort of have, uh, it's sort of like being a college freshman again. It's pretty funny. Yeah, and like, and also just being in this bubble, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it, it's like college in that like all your needs are met, you eat in this cafeteria, you're just studying or whatever it is you're supposed to be doing yeah and you don't really have money yeah I know when I got back I had to reacclimate. um I mean you do alcohol costs money but beyond that um you don't pay for food or anything like that yeah so I kind of forgot about currency the place that can seem so solitary is actually more social than maybe being in your studio here in LA. Totally. Yeah. You wouldn't think that you would go to Antarctica for the people, but um, I kind of, I mean, I really miss it and I would go back. And part of that is because the people you meet there are so awesome. I mean, it, it's a self-selecting group of either really brilliant scientists that 
um, want to go to the ends of the earth to investigate ideas and then the people that work there are people that have an adventurous spirit and just think that going to Antarctica is an exciting you know place to be so it's a it's a great group of people really interesting group do you feel like you're sort of following this legacy of of you know explorers who also draw and paint and do art I mean like you know Charles Darwin and all these other explorers and scientists. Yeah, I think about that legacy a lot of scientists as artists or expedition artists. And um, it's a great lineage that I really admired. And I actually learned to draw from copying like bird books. My dad is a birder and I would get his birding field guides and Audubon books and um, draw those birds. And so I've always been influenced by that type of natural illustration. Um, And when I started painting the Yeti crab, right as it had been discovered, I thought about that even more, about how Audubon and Durer and Henslow and Darwin, like they were documenting newly discovered organisms. And right now the deep sea and Antarctica, they're both underexplored and we're constantly discovering new phenomena and new organisms and so I'm that makes me feel very close to that lineage where I'm painting things as they're discovered Um, although now we have digital photography which does a wonderful job of capturing like newly discovered organisms so digital photography sort of has supplanted like natural illustration. But at the same time, as a painter, I can still participate in that and add um, like another dimension to it. 